Take your Bible. If you don't have one, pause it and go find one. Take your Bible and turn to Revelation chapter 20. As we near the end of the book. End of time, really. Revelation chapter 20, this is God's word. I would remind you that it was written a long time ago. It was written by a man, I suspect, in 95, 96 AD, somewhere around there. But when God wrote it, his spirit wrote it, he wrote it with you in mind. Even with this day, whichever day you're listening to it, this day in mind. Hear God's word, Revelation chapter 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands." They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Years. Let's ask God's blessing upon His Word. Father, we do ask that Your Spirit would give life and light to our minds. Your Word's perfect. We're frail. We have the lingering corruption of sin. Give help. We pray for Christ's sake. For Father, we long to see Jesus. In whose name we pray. Amen. Start with a simple statement. I love the Confederate flag. I think it's a pretty looking flag. This is probably the point at which you're going, Michael, what are you doing? This is on the internet. Why are you saying such things? Maybe some are are panicking in their mind as, oh no, my pastor's on the internet saying things. He's praising a flag that for some uh, represents uh, systemic racism and the cringe factor is so high. 
Others are like, oh, well, I, I love how the pastors highlighted the heritage that my great-great-great-grandparents had. Uh, certainly we don't like the bad parts, but we like to honor them. Notice I never said anything actually about any of that at all. I said I think it's a pretty looking flag. I, I like actually the design of two bits that go. I like the Union Jack. I, I like the diagonal fits my eye. But it's interesting, I actually commented on what the flag itself looks like. But because you have so much baggage with what that flag represents, you most likely responded to something I didn't say. I said, that picture looks pretty. That's all I said. Yet we respond over the top with all of the baggage and heartache or joy and delight or the complexities of modern politics or whatever else we think of when that flag is mentioned. See, what's happened in this situation is we've encountered something that is so loaded with political, cultural, emotional, and sinful baggage that we're not listening anymore to what I actually said. And the challenge with Revelation chapter 20, and there's a bunch of passages in Scripture like this as well, but Revelation 20 is perhaps, I think, the most uh, clear example of this in the book of Revelation, is that we come to a passage with so much baggage that we run risk of not actually hearing what is said. Rather than longing for the pastor to condemn the Confederacy or uh, consent, condemn slavery, condemning slavery is easy, it's evil, it should never have been done, and it's a great tragedy. We're longing for that instead of listening to what's actually being done. Here in Revelation chapter 20, there's a great risk that we actually bring so much baggage to the text that we don't hear what God is talking about and certainly miss out on what's happening spiritually for us. And the primary issue is the issue of revelation. <laughs> it's the sermon I've, I've been dreading since we started this great journey. It's the, the sermon of the millennium. And I do want to be upfront historically within the reformed kind of branch of Christendom. Uh, there have uh, historically been kind of three views, primary views within reformed Christendom. Uh, that has largely been kind of reduced to two within the PCA. And, and I, I'm going to teach you one of them today. It's the view that was uh, held by Augustine. It's the view that's held by Calvin. Uh, it's building on a long tradition. It's one of the two really old views. Uh, and it's largely dealing with this millennium in, a, uh, in the context of Jesus' reign. I do just want to put just a couple of bits of info in your brain before we even start. One of the great dangers, as I mentioned in my introduction with the most cringeworthy, unpleasant, awkward introduction I could think of, designed to make you feel uncomfortable, is that I think we've actually made too big of a deal of this chapter. We have entire systems of thought, entire views of the end times that are built entirely around the idea of the millennium, something that is mentioned in one chapter in the entirety of the whole Bible. 
In fact, that word thousand, that word in the Greek is only used four times in the entire New Testament outside of this passage. Three of which are in the book of Revelation. Two of those usages are used as representative numbers, the 1260 days. That's uh, the half, the three and a half number uh, that's being used, that number of incompletion. The third usage in the book of Revelation is for the 1600 furlongs, one that commentators pretty much unanimously have no idea what it's talking about. And the fourth usage, interestingly, is Peter commenting that one day is like a thousand years for God. (laughs) Three of the uses effectively being referring to literal usages, but with some sort of symbolic spiritual activity taking place and one that we genuinely don't really know what's happening. So I'm hesitant to build my entire eschatology, my entire view of the end times around one specific passage that's super complicated and narrow. Instead, what I think we can do and what I think we can see is uh, there are some very clear spiritual truths that are going to keep us uh, from getting down into the weeds and getting lost into all of the the, the minutia and complexities uh, of what so many spend uh, their reading, their their page count uh, on. See, what's happening in the book of Revelation here as we build to chapter 20 has been this intensification of the story of what's coming. And we noted at the beginning of this book that the primary focus of the book of Revelation is not the end, but the immediate. John is writing in 95, 96 AD, he's writing for Christians, knowing that the world is about to get very difficult for them. God has revealed it to him. Jesus has revealed it to him that there is going to be persecution coming and there's going to be great trials coming for the people of God. They will start being martyred uh, in a terrible fashion. And so this book is given to remind them that Jesus wins. Jesus wins in the end, but Jesus wins in the now as well, in the immediate, in the present, Jesus wins. So live in light of that victory. But Jesus and John both know how people operate. And for us to simply say Jesus wins, well, uh, most of us in this church would go, well, I know that. Thanks, pastor, for telling me something I already know. I already believe that. Why are you spending time preaching? Did did you spend your whole week preparing just to tell me that Jesus wins again? That's not how our brains learn just to hear the same thing the same way over and over and over again. So what they do is uh, Jesus and John have figured in this book uh, to help us understand, to help us remember, is to tell the same story over and over and over again, but change the images that are used in it. Change the emphasis of each story just a little bit. Change the illustration just a touch so that each time it highlights something different to capture our mind and our imagination and our heart. 
I described early on, I think probably the best way to think of the structure of the book of Revelation is kind of twofold. I think there's two images that help us understand is one is it's a collection of like Polaroid pictures of photographs that just kind of get dumped out on the floor where you have these snapshots of truth, but don't exactly tell the same one kind of continuous story. It's not like a shoelace where it's all one bit that's connected. Instead, it's kind of choppy and broken and tells the same bits over and over again. The second illustration is perhaps a little bit even clearer where it's like links in a chain. Where it tells that one story but then tells it again just slightly differently and tells it again slightly differently and tells it again. One of the things that does happen that makes this so interesting is that as it progresses through the book, the story intensifies every time. It gets bigger every time. The consequences get greater every time. It gets larger. It gets grander to to help our minds kind of process how big this event actually is. I mean, in the early part of the book, when the the judgment comes, we see it's described as kind of impacting creation, but it's impacting a part of creation. A third of the stars would be taken out. A third of this would die. A portion of that would die. A portion later on in the book, you get further along. Guess what? More things die. More of creation is impacted until we've gotten to these previous couple chapters. And what died? Well, everything did. Creation itself was unmade, this intensifying, this increasing, this growing in the sense of grandeur and scale. Chapter 20 is the end. There's no more hard stuff after chapter 20. It's part of why I've broken it up into two parts. Two sermons, it's the final description of what's taking place in the now and in the not yet. There's none left after this. It's only description of the life to come in the best of ways. 21 gets that new heaven and new earth. 22 describes that just slightly different with the great truth that Jesus is coming back. But here in chapter 20 is the final description of this now and not yet tension, this uh, reality of life today, but with the coming conclusion of time and space. And I think it's probably the clearest in this chapter, maybe not in all of the details, again, what's exactly happening with the millennium and all of that, but It's the clearest in this chapter that John's kind of theme through the book. Now, because Jesus wins, the church wins now, and the church wins later. In fact, I think we're going to see that this, this theme is illustrated in the book, that the church wins now and the church wins later, uh, and it's illustrated kind of within the looming backdrop of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In fact, as the book begins, or I mean the chapter begins here in verse 1, then I saw this kind of standard John language for and now for something completely different. This is his language. And then I saw an angel. It tells us that he shifted Polaroid pictures to the next snapshot. This is not a continuation of chapter 19. It's a new chapter, a new story, a new event. And then I saw an angel coming down from heaven. This glorious angel of might and power and glory. And holding in his hand is the key. And this key is the key that kind of transforms the nature of human existence. It transforms what life looks like for humans. We're going to find out more about that in a moment. But historically, Reformed theologians have viewed this key to be the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That moment in time and space where everything changed. I love how the Westminster Standards explain that. We're talking about what it means to keep the Sabbath. And it it highlights that from creation all the way to the resurrection of Jesus, uh, God's moral law was to, to have that one day set aside for rest and worship. That seventh day of the week, following the pattern of God the Father himself. And then to think that the resurrection of Jesus is so great that it alters the very fabric of creation. The very essence of creation is altered. That the Sabbath, which was started prior to the fall, is shifted days to the first day, to the resurrection day, to Sunday. Each Sunday rehearsing the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, rehearsing the victory that he has accomplished. There's three aspects of victory that we get to see displayed in this passage, this turning point of the resurrection of Jesus. How does the resurrection of Jesus change the life that mankind, men and women, boys and girls, may live? First, it transforms our existence because the devil is really and genuinely defeated in the resurrection. Really and genuinely defeated. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding in his hand the key, and specifically it is the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. Now, again, all of this is uh, it's imagery. This is good storytelling. Uh, you don't lock a spirit in a bottomless pit, and you cannot chain a spirit. <laughs> Angels are spiritual beings. They don't have bodies the way that we do. John and Jesus are obviously using uh, imagery, literary devices to help our minds understand what's taking place. As if that weren't clear, he then explains that in verse 2. And this angel seized the dragon, that was an image used for the devil previously, that ancient serpent, that was an image used back in Genesis 3, who is the devil, the adversary, uh, and Satan. 
All of four titles being rolled into one to explain what this angel is doing. He's taking the great accuser of the people of God and he's binding him with a chain for a thousand years and throwing him into the pit. Shut it, sealed it. Uh, One of the commentators notes that's probably the grammatical construction of kind of today's language to say it's signed, sealed, and delivered. So that the devil is indeed confined. He's limited. He, he is a conquered enemy. And this is one of the beautiful things, the great realities of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, that when Jesus rises from the dead, when he is raised, when he uh, comes back to life, regains life in his human body, always having had life in his divinity, when he regains life in his human body, The grave is defeated. Jesus beat it. It wasn't strong enough to hold him. But the devil is defeated. And it's at that point that that defeat is is fully accomplished. There's nothing left for uh, the defeat except for Jesus to exercise it. The accuser has lost his ground for accusation. The one who would be the adversary of the people of God has lost his ability to impact them without the permission of the one who has conquered him. Prior to that great resurrection, the devil actually had all kinds of influence over uh, people, over nations, over uh, the the, the created order itself, certainly um, subservient to God's divine power. But after the resurrection, something changes. He's limited, confined in his role and what he's allowed to do as Jesus reigns on the throne. One of the other commentaries uh, give a great illustration, uh, I thought, is it kind of helped my mind understand what this looks like is, uh, you know, here he's thrown into a pit. This is like a, a holding area. It's designed to help our mind understand the, the limited impact that the devil would have. And this commentator explained that think of it like uh, if you ever had um, a dog that you could put like on a chain on, a, on a, like a lead or like a zip line. If you've ever seen those where uh, some houses will have that where they'll have like a, you know, a rope attached and with the dog's leash connected to it. And the dog is, is trapped. The dog is chained. The dog is confined to a certain area. But within that area is able to do a tremendous amount of damage. <laughs> As long as you stay outside the dog's reach, well, he can't get you. But the second you step inside the reach of that chain or that rope, well, things are a little different. I think it's highlighting this great victory over the evil one in the resurrection that Jesus accomplishes. And he's limiting the impact of the devil himself. Now, I think one of the great ways that uh, I think my favorite to see here in verse 3, it explains, well, what's the purpose of him being put in this pit? I mean, it's not his eternal judgment. That's going to happen next Sunday. I mean, I hope it happens before that when Jesus comes back, but in the sermon next Sunday. No, this is a, a holdover place. Because what's happening here in verse 3 is we can see he's he's shut, he's sealed, he's locked away in this pit for a thousand years. Why? So that he might not deceive the nations anymore. 
That his evil ministrations to destroy those that are in God's image are limited. They're confined as to how far he can push. And to think about it, again, I, I love that we're so New Testament and so shaped by the New Testament that we forget kind of the, the emotional and spiritual and cultural impact that the, the gospel and the resurrection of Jesus Christ had. You think about, though, you know, uh, go back a thousand years prior to the Lord Jesus. If, if you wanted to know God the Father... You literally, geographically, had to go to Israel and specifically to Jerusalem. I mean, if you were a Gentile, you really had no chance to get into his presence. If you were a woman, you literally had a limited chance, not a good one, to get into his presence. It was mediated and kind of blocked away and everything. And you had to be born into the right family to even get into his presence in any real and meaningful, genuine way. Inside one building, inside one city, inside one country, inside one place in the world. I mean, we forget that. We forget that prior to the arrival of Jesus, if you wanted to know God the Father, you had to become a Jew. One nation. I mean, if we were going to be a bit kind of a little bit tongue in cheek, we would say there was no salvation apart from Israel. You had to become a Jew. You had, that was where God resided. That's where you found his word. That's where you got to know him and hear of his covenant promises and hear of his mercy and his faithfulness and that he is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. But it was always through Israel. If you were born on the far side of the world, well, I'm sorry, tough luck. But after the arrival of Jesus, something changes. The gospel is no longer confined. The good news of God's loving kindness towards his people, his willingness to forgive sins in the Lord Jesus Christ, it's no longer confined to that one nation of Israel. In fact, even highlighting very rapidly that it's taken from Israel and then given to the Gentiles and given to the nations and spread to the ends of the earth. I mean, think about it. There's what, 7 billion people on our planet right now? Was it something like 3 billion of them, 2 billion people profess the name of the Lord Jesus? Now, I don't know if all of those are Christians or not. I'm not going to presume to know their heart, but let's just suggest that half of them are. <laughs> That's a billion Christians on planet Earth right now. It's a little different than the nation state of Israel. You think about how we've even been able to see with our eyes and hear with our ears and experience for ourselves how this devil is bound in some fashion. That his deception of the nations is limited now. So that for them, it is now reserved for salvation It's interesting, this word nations is used 16 times in the book of Revelation. This is one of the last three, and all of the last three are positive references to salvation. 
That the nations, which in the Old Testament, that was a word that was synonymous with the Gentiles, with the unbelievers, with those who would receive God's judgment. Now in the New Testament under Jesus, we see have become those that are illustrations of God's mercy. God's forgiveness. The devil is limited. His power is below that of the Lord Jesus. This is why the session of this church always encourages you to pray for protection against the devil. We know he hates us. We know though he is bound and limited, he's still like that dog on a chain. We still live within the created order and he is still seeking our destruction, but he is limited in power. He cannot have his way with God's children without God's holy purposes being victorious. He cannot even do that without God's holy permission. Ask for God's mercy, for his protection. I would encourage you, some of you I know you need to ask, even in this season, ask that God would showcase his victory by keeping temptation from you. You sin so quickly. Keep the temptation away. So for this season... In the book here, this uh, point, the devil is bound. He's limited for a thousand years. That number, again, uh, is as with, I think, every reference in the New Testament, is a symbolic number. It's a number representing completion. We've seen it used that way in the book already, even with the 144,000. It's the completion, the totality of of the people of God here, the thousand, the completion of God's reign on earth. Until at the very end, he's let go for a little while. He's given a little bit extra chain to you, so to speak, and is allowed to run amok. I don't know what that looks like. Could that be right now? It could be. It could be. Nikki and I were talking about that even last night with another one of the great volcanoes of the world started erupting last night. And she asked me the question. She's like, is this the end? It just every week there's something new. I know it's crazy. It doesn't stop there, though. The victory of, of Christ Jesus in the resurrection is not limited to victory over the devil, both now and in the future, but it's reserved for God's people. And we're going to see it's reserved for God's people in death. Really and genuinely, God's people are really and genuinely victorious in death. This is what happens in chapter 4. Then I saw, John is taken in his vision, I saw thrones and seated on them. He's taken here in his heavenly vision to see uh, these thrones in glory themselves. Seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. And I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and who had not worshiped the beast or its image and had not received the mark on their foreheads or hands. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. 
In this resurrection of the Lord Jesus, what he accomplishes is victory for his people immediately upon death. With the resurrection, he he defeats the grave, he defeats Sheol, he defeats the wrath of God, he defeats the devil. But in that, that victory is shared with his people immediately upon death. So that what is described here in verses, uh, in verse 4, is a portrait of what the saints look like uh, once they pass into the life to come. Uh, what is death for the Christian now? It is simply the doorway of leaving this victory and entering into new victory. And the portrait of these saints is spectacular. Uh, they are seated on a throne. They've completed the task. That would have been the significance there. Uh, The one who sits down is the one who's done working. They're the ones who have been victorious. They've accomplished the task in front of them. Not only have they accomplished the task in front of them, they're seated on thrones because they are royalty. They're brothers and sisters of the Lord Jesus, kings and queens in a derived fashion but royalty nonetheless. They're vindicated. These ones that now seated on these thrones reigning, you even get to see some of them are the ones who were martyred for the Lord Jesus and every bit of suffering that they shed, every bit of blood that they shed, every bit of suffering that they endured is now vindicated because they are blessed in Christ Jesus. Their purity, the sacrifice that they endured not to be contaminated by the world, the flesh, or the devil, the the difficulties they had in, in resisting and fighting against God's enemies, they're now made worth it. They're blessed. This is where the passage gets a touch more complicated as it's presuming a well-acquainted reader, a reader who is well-acquainted with the Gospels. And it's presuming that the, the reader would understand that the ministry of Jesus, his primary message was repent, repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. It has begun now. The kingdom doesn't wait until later. King Jesus' holy reign didn't wait until later. We're not not waiting for the second coming for him to become king. He he exercised his rule as king even uh, in the flesh before he was crucified, but after the resurrection even more clearly. So God's people, even in his victory in King Jesus' holy reign, the second they perish from this body and pass into the life to come, are ushered into even greater victory. With this portrait of of kings and queens reigning, being equipped to judge righteous and holy. So real and genuine Defeat of the devil, 
real and genuine victory in death for God's people. Here we're going to see real and genuine victory in life for God's people. Uh, Four deals with the death element of it. Five and six deal specifically with those that we would consider still alive today. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. And oh my goodness, this is where it does get a little bit complicated. Save it for the last three minutes of the sermon. Well done, Michael. You see, everybody, all humans, men and women, boys and girls, righteous, unrighteous, holy, unholy, redeemed, non-redeemed, all humans will pass through the first death. That is the point where the soul leaves the body and the body perishes. The heart stops beating, the brain stops functioning, the body dies. That is the first death. Likewise, all humans will go through, so first death, all humans will go through what is called the second resurrection. Men and women, boys and girls, righteous and unrighteous, holy and holy, redeemed and unredeemed, all will go through what's called the second resurrection. That is, at the second coming, when all are raised together, some for judgment and damnation, some for vindication, restoration, and glorification in Christ Jesus. Some raised to life, some raised for eternal death, but all go through the first death, the body dying, all go through the second resurrection the body being raised. In between that, though, there's a little bit of work that has to be done. Because in between, it highlights that there's also another resurrection and there's another death. And that resurrection and that death are those that deal with the nature of the human heart. Those that do not know God and will not know God and never know God, those are the ones that go through that first death. That heart that never knows God where death reigns inside. Ezekiel would note this where he says, uh, talking about the salvation process, he tears out the heart, that dead heart, to put in a heart of flesh. It's that death that takes place on the inside. Likewise, here, John is referring, explaining the nature of God's redeeming work on the inside of the saint as a work of resurrection. That we are resurrected not just in body later, but we are resurrected in soul currently. Paul takes this idea often and runs with it that we are dead in Christ and we are raised in him currently. That already we are raised in him. Already we are alive in him. Already we are resurrected in him because we are joined in Jesus. And so he describes the people of God as those that are already raised. So what's happening here in verse 5 is complex grammar, classic John in that regard of not fully delineating and mixing his sentences a little bit uh, in a confusing fashion. He says, look, all of humans are not raised bodily until the very end. 
Bodies are not raised from the dead. the, The general resurrection for all humans doesn't happen until the very end. That's going to happen again next week in the sermon. However, for God's people, there is a resurrection that takes place inside time where he gives them a new, real, genuine, transformed, living heart. So much so, verse 6, blessed and holy is the one who shares in this first resurrection. This is the language that John has used throughout the book to describe the people of God. Blessed and holy are God's people whose souls have been made alive, who have been made new, who have been redeemed. And it's these people that do not have to fear even the the death of the body. But they don't have to be afraid of the death of the soul. It has no power. Death has no power over them at all. In fact, even so much so that these ones, these resurrected people, their bodies aren't raised yet. Their souls are raised. These, These saints of God, even now in this life, right now, you and me, we are priests of God and of Christ. And even now, you and me are reigning with him. If Christ has done it, we get credit for it. If Christ is doing it, we join in with him. He is reigning now, and we join in with him. You see, this is part of the great message of Easter Sunday. That Jesus lives, and so shall I, but so do I. I don't have to wait. And I suspect this is actually the big point that John is driving at. That for Christians who were reading this, they were terrified. Because they were beginning to see a world around them that was unraveling. The Romans had begun to turn on them. The Jews had begun to turn on them. The Greeks or the leftovers had begun to turn on them. They they were quickly becoming a people of persecution. And it looked like the world was ending. And here, the the kind of climactic chapter, the concluding chapter of, of the great conflict, John writes to them and says, look, don't be afraid. Jesus was raised from the dead and has already accomplished victory over the devil. You do not need to be afraid of the world unraveling. Jesus was raised from the dead and has already accomplished your victory the moment you die. You don't have to be afraid of the world unraveling. Jesus was raised from the dead and has already accomplished your victory even in this life. You do not need to be afraid of the world unraveling. And I'll be honest, if I had preached this a year ago, this would have been a very different sermon because the world didn't look like it was unraveling. Boy, man, a lot changes in the last eight weeks. As we look at an economy that's unraveling, culture that seems to be unraveling, 
Every week, it's a new illustration of some great catastrophe uh, in the created order with now volcanoes. And the message hasn't changed. Do not be afraid. Jesus was raised and has accomplished victory. Amen. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We bless you. We bless him. We bless the spirit. And we ask that he would work in us even now that we might not be afraid. For Christ's sake, amen.